Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Hello and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. My name is Mike Bernard. I am your host. Thanks for being with us. Like Jeff, I am a certified financial planner licensee. This show is all about helping you discover what matters most and helping you get your actions and resources in alignment with your goals. We combine excellence in wealth management with the pursuit of meaning and purpose in your life. Jeff Bernier is the founder, president, and chief investment officer of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, a wealth management firm in Alpharetta, Georgia, a suburb in the greater Atlanta area. Well, Jeff, it's been a whole year. It's our final episode of the year. And I'm, I know you're excited about it. You, you know, Mike, I really, I really am excited about this episode. Um, you know, you in the audience know that a major theme that we've talked about throughout the year, and as a matter of fact, one of the core values of our firm is collaboration to work with other people in creating something special. And, and uh, today I'm, I'm really excited uh, that this month we're going to have a special guest on the show. Uh, an individual that actually we do collaborate with in our in our firm. Uh, David Holstrom is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Financial Architects in Woodstock, Georgia. And, uh, you know, David is a, a neat guy, and not only does he run a very successful wealth management firm up in our area, uh, he also provides consulting services to firms like ours, and that's how we, we collaborate uh, in our firm. But he also is an educator. He teaches CFP courses and university courses and uh, CPAs. But I've known David, I don't know, probably for 10 or 15 years, and I have learned a lot from David over that time. So welcome, David Holstrom. Uh, it's my pleasure to join you today. Well, thank thank you so much for for being here. This this uh, this will be a lot of fun. So, uh, before we jump in, I always um, when we have a guest, it's always fun to to uh, get to know you a little bit more. And let you let the audience get to know you. So, do you mind just telling uh, the audience a little bit about yourself and your background, and importantly, sort of what your path was to where you are now in terms of professionally? Sure. Well, I always wanted to work with. Uh, money and investments and, and something like that. But I didn't, right out of college, didn't really know what I was doing. And I got hired at a firm to be sort of a traditional stockbroker. Um, and I was there for about five minutes. And in that five minutes, I realized not only did I not know what I was doing, nobody in the room knew what they were doing. They were just calling people on the phone and trying to sell them things. And so I sort of was on a mission to get smarter over time. And so um, I ended up joining the um, training department of a regional brokerage firm and, and trained advisors actually on some technology and also some financial planning stuff, which is odd because I was woefully underqualified, but I knew more than the than the brokers did. Um, and then I worked for a firm that made Monte Carlo simulation software for advisors, which is a math technique for modeling uncertainty. And it was one of the, that firm was one of the pioneers in sort of rolling that out. And along the way, I got an MBA and a, a CFP and a CFA and, and a variety of things. And so then I ended up opening my own law, my own firm as I had uh, long intended. Very cool. Very cool. So what, what motivated you at some point uh, to start uh, being a resource to other firms? Because I know you put out 
a lot of material. You put out your ruminations blog, and you put out your resources for advisors periodically. And again, you consult with guys like us. What what moved you into that world? Well, when I started my firm originally. Um, I realized very quickly that I had no clients and everybody I knew professionally was a competitor. <laughs> so I like to say that I started slowly and then tapered off. Um, but um, I, I actually cold called a couple of firms. I had just finished my certified financial planner designation and I cold called a couple of the education providers and said, you looking for any teachers and talked to them for a few minutes and, and they all wanted to hire me immediately. And I thought that was odd. So on the third call, I, I asked the person, I said, why, why is this so easy? And she said, well, we have a problem with instructors. The ones that are technically competent are excruciatingly boring, and the people who tell good stories don't know anything, and you seem to be sort of in that sweet spot in the middle <laughs> from what we can tell. So I started doing teaching, and then I just find a lot of things really interesting in financial planning, and I spend way too much time building spreadsheets and thinking about things. And um, years ago, I emailed a couple of friends who were in the industry, and I don't even remember what the first thing was. I emailed them something I thought was cool. They thought it was cool. I kept emailing them stuff, and it sort of got out of hand. So I've got about 3,000 financial professionals now on an email list that every quarter I send the things I've been I've been thinking about and working on. And it makes me feel better because uh, I, if it's just me, I've wasted way too much time on this stuff. But if I share the wealth, I sort of feel like maybe somebody somewhere will get paid on this someday. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cool. So, um, yeah, yeah and, I, and I know that you, you sit on some investment committees like ours and, and, and those kind of things. So right. just, I guess it, it, it migrated into that type of work as well at some point. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, I enjoy doing that. It, and it's interesting to see how other firms do things and how other firms think about things. Jeff, you and I are in pretty good philosophical alignment. So there's, it's not, I'm not usually surprised by stuff you guys do, but some of the other firms, um, there's one firm that I used consulting for, and they have uh, in excess of $3 billion under management, and they pay me to be on their investment committee and give them my perspective, which they then largely ignore. But um, <laughs> I, I find they do things very differently because it's, it's a very different sort of um, – philosophy. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, as, as I mentioned before, you know, this show is about collaboration, but it's also about having a conversation that I hope will combine high-quality wealth management ideas and topics with the broader issues around meaning and purpose and, you know, kind of what this is all for. And we've talked a lot on the show about finding our unique abilities or those things where passion and excellence intersect. Um, so what do you think yours are? What do you think your unique ability is or that thing that you love to do and you're great at doing? Well, my unique ability, as odd as it may be to say this, is some of you in the audience that are old enough will remember the old Arsenio Hall show, and he used to have a bit he did, things that make me go, hmm. <laughs> and in financial planning and investments, there's just a lot of stuff that makes me go, hmm, that's interesting, and where most people who have actual lives would go, okay, well, that's interesting, let me move on to the next thing. I sit there and start reading and fiddling and doing spreadsheets and things to figure out how does this actually work, is there an application here or, or whatever, and so the intellectual exercise for me is the thing. I particularly love debunking things that the conventional wisdom thinks is correct, um, and so I know, Jeff, you've seen some of my, my emails that I've shared where a wholesaler for some mutual fund is trying to pitch me a product, and I just yeah. take him apart piece by piece. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you 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 love the you're high fact find. You love the the uh, digging in. So, but and yeah. you are you are a prolific reader and researcher and writer, and that's really I, I wanted to talk today about a couple of the posts you you've written because I thought they were they were interesting and I thought they were useful for a broader audience like we have. 
uh, uh, at the show. So the, the first one uh, that I wanted to just talk to you a little bit about was a blog you wrote called The Four Rules for Guaranteed Financial Success. And so right. I just have to imagine your compliance <laughs> attorney loved that title. So uh, you want to you expand a little bit on that? Well, I found that the key to getting stuff by the compliance attorney is not to ask them before you do it. Perfect. Um, <laughs> but I did, I opened that piece because it it's a provocative title and I realized, you know, that is provocative. And so my first line was, um, um, it'll make financial regulators hyperventilate and plaintiff's attorneys salivate. Um, and we actually have a, uh, a securities attorney who sues advisors for a living as a client. And he, he loves us. I was an expert for him many years ago. And, and I don't worry about that. But other advisors think that's, that's sort of crazy for me to do. But I, I, was, I was conscious that when, as soon as you say guaranteed, people get excited. But I think if you sort of go through the rules, you go, okay, yeah, that sort of really is guaranteed. Right. I mean, there might be some way to mess that up, but I don't know how you do it. Right, right. Yeah, so um, I, I love the article because there was a lot of wisdom in a very short article, and with my short attention span, that fit that fit right in. So in the article or in your thought process, how are you defining – so the, the name of the article, again, was Four Rules for Guaranteed Financial Success, but how are you defining financial success? Yeah, and that's an interesting question. And years and years ago, I, I thought a lot about this because, as you do, Jeff, I'm sure, we have clients who have a lot of money who are going to blow up, and we have clients without very much money who are in fine shape. So it's not a function purely of how much money do I have. It's a function of how much money do you have relative to what you need. Mm. Um, and so I would define financial success as simply having more than you need. And interestingly, in the U.S. in the 21st century, uh, a lot of people focus on having more when they might more profitably focus on needing less. Hmm. Great. So it's really about having what you need, not necessarily uh, right. having the most. Um, okay, any, any other definitions that need clarification before we go through the yeah, rules? Yeah, well, the other, the other version of happiness I'll, I'll throw out there is uh, economists have studied this for years, and Milton Friedman's one, I don't not sure he invented this concept, but he certainly popularized it, that what maximizes happiness is levelized lifetime consumption. In other words, keeping your, your spending as level as possible through your life seems to maximize happiness. So mm -hmm. when we get to the rules in a minute, that's sort of what I have in mind is how do you, how do, you do that? Um, the other thing is that these rules get you, quote unquote, guaranteed, but they're a little extreme because to get to guaranteed, you really have to push the envelope. And so I'm not suggesting as we go through these that if you don't do these, you're a financial train wreck. It's just the closer you come to doing these, the more certain your outcomes will get. So moving in the direction of these is a positive move, essentially. Yes. Okay. Okay. Cool. So okay. So let's jump in. So what is what is I'll be I'll be like David Letterman today. So rule number one. So what is rule number one that guarantees financial success? The rule number one is is a really simple one, and it's just because if you don't do this, uh, you're going to have problems, and that's to start young. You know, if you wait until you're 60 to start planning for retirement, that's probably not going to work out all that well. Um, but this is also one that you, you sort of can't fix if you're not young already. So this is unfortunate, but the first rule is start when you're really young. Okay, so that one's simple enough. I yep. think I get that one. Okay, yep. so what's rule number two? What's next? Rule number two is to maximize whatever tax-advantaged retirement vehicles you have available to you. And I'm going to have to caveat that a little bit, but 
I like to keep things really simple sometimes. And so if you just say max out your 401ks, max out your IRAs and so forth, for most people, that's probably the right answer. But there are some exceptions. Obviously, if you make $30,000 a year and the limit in the 401k is eighteen five, that's probably not going to work. <laughs> yeah. um, and if you make a million dollars a year, just putting the money away in your IRA is not going to work. You have to do more. But the idea is most people woefully undersave. And so going back to that levelized lifetime consumption sort of concept, I did a little analysis a few years back and said, okay, suppose somebody makes, just for ease of computation, say they make $100,000 a year and they're gonna save some of that and that's gonna grow and that's gonna become whatever they live on in retirement. So for example, if they save 10% of it, they're saving $10,000 a year and let's assume they retire, they start doing this at age 35 and they do it until they're 65 and then they take whatever's built up and they in turn spend that down until they hit 95. And I ignore taxes and social security and all sorts of stuff that complicates it in the real world. Just try to get to what savings rate would you need to have levelized lifetime consumption? Okay. And the answer is just a shade under 25%. Okay. Wow. Which is scary to people, but keep in mind that does not include social security and so forth. So right. the the lower your income, it doesn't have to be quite 25%, but that right. is sort of, uh, I, I throw that out there because it level sets people on how much you really do need to put away. Right, right. Any um, so if the if the rule is to maximize tax advantage savings, which are primary retirement plans, do you? Right. And um, I'll throw a quick curveball here. Can you give us a quick rule of thumb about order of savings in qualified plans? Because you hear people all the time say, you know, do you do a Roth IRA outside of the plan first, or do you do a deductible right. versus Roth, and those kinds of things. You have any simple rules of thumb that I guess you would edit well, the, at a client-by-client client basis? Well, the IRA versus Roth is a little bit complicated. There's a ton of factors. We could do a whole podcast just on that question, actually. Okay. Um, the the order, though, is a little simpler. Generally, you want to start with, if you have it available at your work, start with an HSA, um, health savings account, if you have that available, because that gives you a tax deduction putting the money in, and it's tax-free coming out for medical expenses. And some people have really exploited this by not using it for medical expenses today, but they're actually waiting for retirement to use it for retiree medical expenses. Right. Yeah, we so there's yeah. virtually nothing in the tax code that's tax deductible going in and tax-free coming out. It's, it's virtually always one or the other. The second place would be your employer's plan, provided there's a match up to the level of the match. In other words, if you're getting 50 cents on the dollar for the first 6% or something, that is just free money. You've got to do that. I don't even care if the investment options are, are not particularly good. You've got, still Get got to free do money. that. Yep. Then after that, you switch over to a standalone IRA or Roth um, and do that because your investment options are going to be excellent there. And if you really did need the money prematurely, the exceptions for getting it out without penalties and so forth are a little better than they are in qualified plans. So I like that piece next. Then you, as you're going to save more than that, you would flip back to the um, retirement plan, plan again, like 401k, and do that all the way to the max. Gotcha. And then we keep going. There's other steps past that, but virtually everybody is sort of done at those <laughs> Many <laughs> those people. Points. Right. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So that was number two. So what is the third rule for guaranteeing financial success? Yeah. The third rule would be to never borrow money for a depreciating asset. 
Just never borrow money for a depreciating asset. And when I speak to CPAs, they know what that means. For most people, they don't know exactly what that's referring to. And so I found it's easier to give the exceptions, the things that it's okay to borrow money for. And the first one would be um, an education. Uh, Now, prudent education. Prudent two ways. First, um, the field of study, and secondly, the cost, right? So if, I'll give you an extreme example. If you go to Harvard on student loans, I'm sorry, Harvard's probably a bad example, because a degree from Harvard will probably help you out, sort of regardless of what you do afterwards. (laughs) But if you go to a very expensive private school and major in theater arts or something, that's unlikely to work out It'll work out for one or two people, but it's unlikely on average to work out very well. Economically. Um, But if you are an engineering major at the state school where it's not very expensive, you got a a STEM degree coming out and so forth, that's likely to work pretty well. So a prudent education. It'd be great if all the kids could get out of school with no student loans. But um, if that's the only way somebody can get through college, uh, an education does not depreciate through time. So borrowing for for, for the right type of education. Okay. Are there there other things you borrow for? Uh, Yeah. The other thing, two other things, really, uh, primary residence. We all know that um, houses can go down in value. People didn't know that 10 years ago, but now we know that houses go down in value. But assuming you're making a prudent purchase, it's not reasonable to say you can't buy a house unless you can pay cash. That's a little extreme. Um, so I think that's a reasonable place to borrow money. Assuming, again, it's a prudent purchase. And my definition of a prudent purchase would be the house you live in, your primary residence, should be worth no more than two times your gross income. I'm not saying the mortgage is two times. I'm saying the value of the house. Oh, Otherwise, okay. you've got just too much house. Well, that's, that sounds almost un-American to me. <laughs> that doesn't sound like what most people do. I thought, the, I thought the bank or the mortgage broker tells you to buy the most expensive house you can afford. Yeah, you should never get as much house as, the, as they'll lend you. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, terrific. And then the third one is, is sort of similar to that. It's um, other low-risk investments. So if you have a business and there, you have a line of credit for working capital or something like that, or you want to buy a rental home as an investment, and it's, you know, again, assuming the leverage is a reasonable level, it is rational sometimes to borrow money um, for things like that. Okay, that appreciate. Right, so that was rule, yeah. rule number three. Uh, okay, so last rule for the uh, rules to guarantee financial success. The last one is just to hedge all the risks that you reasonably can. Um, so, for example, you want to make sure you have appropriate life insurance, and disability insurance, and liability insurance, and, and so forth. Um, and one of the risks that is huge in financial planning that people don't sometimes think about as a risk um, is actually getting married because divorce uh, mm-hmm. will absolutely wipe people out um, financially. Wow. Okay. So how do you hedge that? Well, uh, you'd be really careful doing it. Um, and in extreme cases, you might get prenups and gotcha. <laughs> trust funds and things like that. I see. Okay. All right. So so these were the four rules that you wrote up that guarantee financial success. They were start mm-hmm. young, maximize tax-favored savings, uh, never borrow money for depreciating assets, only borrow money for things that uh, have a high probability of increasing over time. And then the fourth one is to hedge reasonable risk. So that was things like insurance and diversified portfolios and, and that that type of thing. So uh, anything else you want to add on, on that article? So that was, that was the article. That was, And I think those were pretty good and useful, simple rules that we can all understand. Whether we'll all do them or not is, a, is another behavioral question. 
Right. And the one that's uh, – let me go back to depreciate items for a moment. Sure. The one that's not on that list that in our culture sort of freaks people out is there's no car on that list, borrowing money for a car, and that's one that people usually balk at. Right. Um, and I'm not saying if you've ever borrowed money for a car, you know, you're, you're doomed for financial purgatory, but um, – I've noticed that people, including me, make different car buying decisions if you're paying cash for a car. Right. Um, you don't buy the same car because when people start thinking about the lump sum, that's a different sort of mental calculus than it is when they're looking at payments. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot. Uh, yeah. So I a lot of this is behavioral tricks that keep you from that help you make is. better decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and successful people tend to think long term and net worth and unsuccessful people tend to think short term and cash flow and you see that in the car piece in particular i have a a funny story if we have enough time i'll share it but i knew a gentleman years ago when i was in grad school um and he was a financial train wreck and i won't get into all the details he was just a disaster he he slept on his sister's sofa and she had declared bankruptcy previously, so she he, wow. she was worse than he was. Oh, wow. um, but he had a relatively new um, Camaro, bright red Camaro, and he was in his early 50s, and he was balding and pot belly and everything, so he just looked like a midlife crisis coming down the street. Um, and I ran into him one day, and he showed me, he knew that I had a sort of finance background. He was very proud of himself. He showed me his brand new red Camaro. Ah. And I said, Tom, you, you got a new car? And he says, oh, yeah. And he looked at me like he was, he was proud of <laughs> what he's about to tell me. He says, the old car needed tires. <laughs> so they bought a new car. Turns out if you buy one, you know, it comes with. So <laughs> he thought that was brilliant financial decision making. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because he's focused on the cash flow. Right. Not focused yeah. on the net worth. What's the payment? So. Well, how much is my payment? Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. Exactly yeah. So, right. Yeah. So the other article you you that I saw recently that you had put out was really about signs that you have a high quality advisor. And I certainly recognize that you and I talking about this topic and with Mike here might be a little self-serving, but Mm -hmm. I was just curious, first of all, what prompted you to write an article like that? Well, I write a lot of things. I find that writing things sort of helps me think um, through things because you can sort of make stuff up in your head, but you actually go to write it down and publish it. You haven't really thought it all the way through. And um, sometimes there's stuff that I've just sort of accumulated as rules of thumb. And I realize I've never written that anywhere. I should, I should write that up. Um, but it's it's partly a prod to people in our industry who are not doing a good job to raise their game, and it's partly a caution to, to people who are hiring advisors to sort of pay attention to what are the things that they really should be doing that they, they may not be doing. Gotcha. Well, and, and you mentioned already through your experience in teaching other advisors and training other advisors and right. being out in the marketplace, you see a lot of different types of firms and models, and so you are pretty convicted about what makes a good advisor and what, what doesn't. So I, I guess that was probably some of the emphasis as well. Yeah, and I find yeah. that a lot of, I'll call low-quality advisors, um, the only things they do are the things the client knows that they should be doing. In other words, mm-hmm. if it adds a lot of value to the client, but the client doesn't know it, they don't worry about it. And that makes me sort of crazy. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get, in, we'll get into this. So uh, in the first part of the article, though, you did mention um, – Quality advisors, Alpha, Gamma, and Sigma. Now, we're going to get really Greek here, but can you just quickly tell me what you're referring to there? 
Well, I was sort of making a joke that it looks like if you talk about this topic, you have to use a Greek letter. Oh. Um, as, as your listeners probably don't know, but as you, you gentlemen know, yeah. um, in the industry, beta is just plain market return. You, you buy an index fund, you buy the SP 500, that's considered beta. And the value add on the investment side where the manager outperforms or underperforms is called alpha. So alpha can be negative if they underperform. And in aggregate, they all do because of costs. Gotcha. Um, but a couple of firms, um, Vanguard, uh, Morningstar and BestNet all came out with articles within a couple of years of each other on other things that advisors do that really do add value that's outside of sort of the stock picking market timing sort of view of the world. Um, and Vanguard called it alpha and Morningstar called it gamma and InvestNet called it sigma. Um, yeah. And I think they were hoping that the terms caught on and they could get credit for we invented that. Yeah. But it doesn't look like any of them have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had a I had a fixed income manager one time that told me that he was the he was the mental alpha, meaning that I guess less stress. He was the mental alpha part of the portfolio. I said, well, I'm not sure that I would yeah. I would describe it that way, but OK. So it looks like David Ford's your magic number. And so you've got four uh, signs that you have a high-quality advisor or things that high-quality advisors do. So let's run through those. What What is the first thing that a high-quality advisor does? Sure. A high-quality advisor, um, in my view, helps clients with things that the client doesn't necessarily recognize um, are important and that they're not necessarily getting paid for. In other words, um, a client wouldn't necessarily know some gap in their plan, and sometimes the advisor doesn't get paid to fill that gap. So the, the quick, quick and dirty one that I use a lot is: Did the advisor recommend a property casualty um, product like an umbrella liability policy? Virtually everybody needs an umbrella policy. Um, the premium is really low. Virtually no financial planners sell umbrella policies, and so they tend to just skip it, even though it's incredibly important for reducing risk. Um, and so that's a good one. Another one would be making sure the client's estate planning is up to date and adequate. Most advisors are not estate planning attorneys, are not going to get paid for that. But did you check it? Did you make sure it's all nailed down? Those are things you're helping the client or you're helping another professional get some business, but there's nothing directly in it for you. So I guess the the advisor who's not just in it for themselves, but actually in it to help the client uh, would be a high quality advisor. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so what would you say is number two? Another one is, is things where the client wouldn't know you didn't do it. So a client may recognize, okay, I need my estate, my, um, estate planning updated and the advisor covered that because the client realizes that's a value add, but there are things that are completely invisible. And my pet peeve on this one is asset location strategy. So Jeff, you and I, and, and you know, most high quality advisors pay attention to this. And we put the more tax efficient investments in the taxable accounts and we put the less tax efficient investments in tax deferred accounts um, for um, efficiency. And over time, it, it really matters. But clients generally don't know, don't know that it was supposed to be done, don't know whether it's done right. Um, and it's amazing to me how many advisors just completely ignore it because clients don't notice. Um, and it's harder operationally to do, to rebalance at the household level than the account level. Right. Um, a quick story on this. Uh, years ago, I was um, in the Financial Planning Association up in Richmond, Virginia, and we did a joint financial planning day with the CPA Society, and, and we've done this every year. One year, we decided to have planners from different types of firms present sample plans from their firms. It's be interesting to see what other people do. And there was a gentleman who I knew casually who worked for an RIA subsidiary of a CPA firm, and it was a pretty good-sized firm. 
And as he's presenting his plan, and it's a real plan with client names blacked out, I noticed they put an S&P 500 index fund inside the IRA, and they put some, I don't remember what the fund was, but something that was very tax inefficient in a taxable account. And so afterward, I went up to him and said, you know, I saw that, and I didn't want to ask you your own thing, but why did you guys do it that way? And he said, oh, we used to pay attention to it, but clients don't notice, so right. it's a pain in the neck, so we just stopped doing it. Oh, right. my goodness. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and that just makes me crazy. Yeah, so that's they it. They clearly know better yeah. and just don't bother. So things that are important to do that clients don't notice, uh, a high-quality advisor does those things. But uh, right. lower quality advisors may not because they don't get credit for it. Right. Another one would be tax loss harvesting. Um, low quality advisors sort of in December, they look at the portfolio and say, is anything down? Um, let me sell that because the client is starting to think about their taxes. But obviously things can be down throughout the year. And since on average investments go up, you want a tax loss harvest whenever there's an economically meaningful loss, not just because it's December. Right. So right. Um, I've actually been doing that last week and, and this week with uh, markets being down. I've been tax loss harvest clients. You probably have too, Jeff. Sure. Um, yeah. And and a lot of advisors are not paying attention to that. Gotcha. Okay. So um, the the last one I think the audience may find a little surprising. So what is number three? Number three is does the advisor actually do things that are counterproductive? So not just ineffective, but actually counterproductive because it looks good. Um, and so in that. This is one of my favorite ones when I see a portfolio statement that a prospective client brings in or something, I sort of scan down the list. And my, my top thing here is if there's a small cap growth fund in the list, because there is extensive academic literature that small cap growth is a terrible asset class to own. <laughs> um, and so if somebody has that in their portfolio that tells me the advisor, either one has no idea what the literature says, which is bad, or what's arguably worse is they know and don't care, and that sounds good. Who doesn't want to own small cap growth? It just sounds really, really good, makes clients happy, even though it's counterproductive. Gotcha. So it's really things that sound and look good, but are actually counterproductive, could actually hurt. Yeah, and another version of that would be sometimes advisor, I'm sure you've had this experience, Jeff, where you're talking to a prospective client, and um, they're shopping a couple of different advisors, and you say, well, you know, you're, you're really not fully prepared for retirement. You're probably going to have to work a few more years and maybe lower your lifestyle a little bit and sell the second house or, or whatever. And they go to some other advisor and says, oh, no, it'll be fine. We'll get you 15% a year, and it'll all be good. <laughs> um, and they choose the other advisor. Well, obviously, that's not going to be good. It's almost certainly going to blow up, but not for 10 or 15 years. Um, and on Wall Street, prior to 2008, there was a saying, I don't know if you've heard it, um, IBG, YBG. Have you ever heard that? IBG, no, YBG? No, no. It stands for I'll be gone, you'll be gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So by the time these products blow up, these toxic mortgages blow up, mm. IBG, YBG, who cares? And some advisors will treat their practices like that. Oh, that's terrible. You know, I'll tell the client whatever they want to hear, get them in as a client, because by the time this is a train wreck and they're in, on Social Security and retirement, I'll be gone. So. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah, that's not exactly client-centric, no, is it? No, that's no. not a really a fiduciary <laughs> mindset. So, okay, so no. what is the last one? We'll, we'll do, um, uh, you know, and the final uh, of the four uh, signs of a high-quality advisor are? These are things that um, 
it really sets quality advisors apart because you recommend things that actually cost you money, right? So if I tell a client you should you buy money. growth, you should These do this other that- thing or, or whatever, um, that's not going to cost me money as the advisor. But there are things that clients sometimes should do that actually take money out of your pocket and my pocket in, in fees. Either whether It doesn't matter your, your business model, if your commissions or fees or whatever, people tend to get paid on the size of a portfolio. So there are things that reduce the portfolio size that are the right decisions. Like sometimes it's the right decision to pay off a mortgage, um, but that's going to reduce the client's fee. And sometimes, I mean, the, the advisor's fee. And sometimes it's the right decision to gift to children because somebody has an estate tax problem, but the, that money's going to leave the account. Or um, this is one that comes up a fair amount for um, sort of middle income folks. It is clearly the right decision, virtually always, to delay Social Security age 70 for the higher earning spouse if it's a married couple. And yet, people really, really, really like to take their Social Security early. And so, talking them into taking it later, and we're not telling them to live on less money, we're Just telling them to take the more money out of the portfolio. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so that costs us money. And I've, I've used this argument a lot. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is actually costing me money to tell you to do this. So I really believe this is right. a compelling decision right. to wait till age 70. Right. So that's a sign that you have a good advisor if they'll do those types of activities or recommend those types of that's things. That's right. They'll tell you the things that, that take money out of their pocket because it's the right decision. Yep. Yep. Well, that, well that's awesome. Those were, those were really useful. I'm, I'm hoping that we can uh, – that we honor those because I think we do in our practice. Yeah. But Mike, you have anything to add on any of those? No, actually, David, this was very, very helpful. And this being our first time connecting, I, I, I took lots of notes. I imagine our listeners did as well. Yeah, very, very cool, David. Anything you'd like to finish up with before we wrap up? Uh, no, I think it's good. I, I enjoyed the, the meeting. If I mentioned that financial professionals list, if we have any folks on the listening who are interested, um, they can certainly sign up for that. If, if you, you want me to give up my website address or whatever, they can sign up on that. Yeah. What, uh, so but what, this is your show. Yeah. So, we, yeah, we will. So uh, why don't you give them your email address, David? So oh, my oh. email is the email is David at financial architects with an S com. David at financial architects com, And I have, um, a quarterly email, as I mentioned, for financial professionals that's not really geared towards sort of retail um, folks, but if we got anybody listening who's a CPA or who's financial planner or, or anything like that and is interested in that, I think you would find it interesting. Very cool. So there, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, David. These are the four rules for success and signs that you are working with a quality advisor with my friend and colleague, David Holstrom. Again, David, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. All right. That concludes another episode of the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier. We hope you found today's discussion interesting and informative. I know I did. Don't forget to check out past episodes or check out Jeff's blog at www.tandemgrowth.com slash perspectives. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or Mike or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at tandemgrowth.com or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com. 
Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted, and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not guarantee its accuracy, and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors LLC does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.